had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear and so delighted to have Natalie Thornton with me. I'm just so happy you said yes. Um, I was trying to remember, I think I first met you through Dr. Tanya Williams, a dear mutual friend at the White Privilege Conference. I remember seeing you and passing and stopping and then at several vegan restaurants over the years. I get to come join you all at dinner. Yes. I have so appreciated those conversations and the insights and nudging. And then you were supposed to be a keynote at the National International White Privilege Conference that was postponed because of the pandemic. And so when you said yes to come share insights, reflections about the current global national dynamics, anti-Blackness, anti-racism, creating liberation, I was so grateful to have you say yes. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And I think we also, we, I don't know if we overlapped at University of Massachusetts Amherst, but did we come out of similar backgrounds in that um, social justice education program there? We did indeed, yes. Yeah, and then you founded Envision Consulting in 2006, so for over 15 years. So many organizations, you facilitated social justice, anti-oppression, liberation workshops in your own style and approach, which I hope we'll get to a bit today. Every time I hear the intro, I somewhat cringe because we developed that a year and a half ago. And in this context of four months of the pandemic, which increasingly is devastating communities that are black and brown and indigenous. I think I read yesterday, the Navajo have the highest infection rate. In the centering of anti-blackness and Black Lives Matter with this most recent uprising. And finally, people might be listening, particularly white people differently than we might have before. Two thirds of whites, or two thirds of the country say they support Black Lives Matter, which is a lot of white people. And so it's in that context that I'm grateful you've joined us and we'll get into lots of dynamics, but I just would love people to get to know you a bit and just, you don't mind sharing just how you and your family and friends are doing in these times. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's been unique to say the least. Um, As the pandemic, pandemic was approaching, I was actually on a family trip in Kauai. And so things were very, very different there. Um, But as we came back to the Oakland, California Bay Area, I think we saw a lot more of what was happening. And, um, you know, don't go out of the house much. Not because I don't 
you know, that, that I have a huge personal fear of contracting the virus. And when I go out, I feel safe with the protective equipment I have and, and distance, but there's just nothing to do. So I think I'm getting a little bored. I know my partner, a little stir crazy. It's really silly. I'd be so excited to like sit down and eat a meal at a fast food restaurant. Um, <laughs> just, just to go anywhere at this point. Um, but yeah, my, my immediate um, circle of, of friends and colleagues is all doing quite well. Uh, my mom and her business has been pretty, pretty hard hit. Um, she runs a dry cleaner out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, and I'm nervous about her going to work because she's interfacing with the public pretty regularly and she's 70. So that makes me a little nervous. But, you know, folks are making it. It's, it's a curious time. Um, and I, I think that it's a lot of the reason that Black Lives Matter is getting the traction that it's getting right now. So I'm okay with it. We'll see, we'll see where things go. I have friends in many parts of the states that are significant increase of infections and, and with so many folks protesting still, my fear has been that how do we get people to hold it all? It's not even just both and anymore. Um, we're such an either or kind of white supremacist cultural nation. Um, so before we leap in a bit more, I would love folks to understand a bit more, and I'd love to, too. How did you come to this work of racial justice, social justice, dismantling oppression um, as your life's work? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was something that happened really organically. So I grew up um, just south of Salt Lake City, Utah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, and my family's not Mormon. Um, we were working class and poor. Um, I am mixed race, 1.5 generation, was born in Korea, grew up there. My dad uh, has mental health issues. Um, and so all of those different pieces, I think, came together in a way that, interestingly enough, um, alienated me, right? But also helped me to understand all of these different layers and lenses. So, you know, I, I understand the immigrant experience, but I also understand what it's like to be, you know, white American living in the U.S. for, for generations. Um, and so I think with those different intersections, uh, it's given me a lens and also language to be able to break things down for folks in ways that just make more sense. Uh, the academy often feels really, really inaccessible. And one of the things that I hear a lot from folks here in the Bay Area is that as they move out, you know, away from their families, you know, from wherever it is in the Midwest, a lot of folks, it's they're the first person in their family that finished college or higher education. And when they go back and try and talk about this stuff, their families don't really want to hear them. But the way that we come at it is what we've learned in this academic frame. And so being able to talk to folks in a different kind of way, you know, my mom speaks English as a second language, and she is easily the most brilliant woman that I know. If she had had a different life path, she would have been so incredibly renowned. Um, she's still incredibly amazing, but um, at times it's hard for her to understand some of these concepts, right? They have to be broken down in a different kind of way to make them accessible for everyone. And so I think that I, that's what I got out of having 
this space of sort of living in the margins or um, the borderlands, if you will. Mm. And, and that brought me to the work. Here I am. <laughs> I'm so grateful. You reminded me of a webinar I just did with Reverend Dr. Jamie Washington, and I have been in deep rage, deep anger. Mm -hmm in these particularly since George Floyd's uh, assassination and the cumulative impact of the murder of particularly brown and black bodies. And so we're in this webinar last week and I'm passionate and we're naming anti-blackness. And, and I got an email today from someone who works in auxiliary services that just said, the language you used had me feel like I didn't belong and I didn't understand. Is there something for people that are newer? And the humility with which uh, I sat with that email as we emailed back and forth a few times, that sometimes in my, uh, sometimes I don't pay attention and say and do and use language, um, especially when I'm live like this. And really sounds like you work hard to meet people where they are without the shame, the blame, the guilt and the nudging to say, okay, now let's go along because we need you all dismantling oppression. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I think I was lucky and, and I give a shout out to, um, I'm not sure if you know Jenny Martin who also went through the social justice ed program, but she also came from a working class background and neither of us were terribly academic in the program and we were okay with that, right? She was another person to just be with in community and not have words like promulgation and ideology and you know whatever, thinking of the definition of racism that's used in, in that teaching for diversity and social justice text. Um, it doesn't have to be like that. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in feeling like we need to fit or be known or you know, the, the academy is also a space where racism, um, white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, right? All of those things reign in that space as well. And that in-group, out-group uh, energy can really keep people away from, from the change. I remember growing up around my table, my dad was an engineer and mm -hmm. he would lecture us about Newton's third law of emotion every time we spilled milk. And I, I don't know if that's the reason, or I can still read quote academic articles or listen to some people who use language that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me to shift. So I actually do feel uh, deeply sad that we were not as accessible mm -hmm. as I hope to be. And I've got class privilege and education privilege and I don't always remember. So I appreciate the grounding and all the intersecting identities. Um, so as you just kind of, as we're in this moment, how are you making meaning of all that's occurring, um, particularly around dismantling anti-Blackness, dismantling racism, the way folks are showing up in different ways? How are you making meaning? Such a big question. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if I'm making meaning of anything. Um, you know, I'm doing my best. The, the, the things that I see and the things that I'm understanding right now, as far as the larger community, uh, I think that people not having anything to do makes us actually sit with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in sitting with ourselves, um, you know, unfortunately we're pushed away from community. And I think that's a thing that we're gonna need to move further forward in this. 
But sitting with ourselves is such an important piece, that self-examination, getting to a place where we can be okay with the discomfort that happens around this stuff. And capitalism and consumerism has been so well-constructed to keep us away from that, right? I joke about just feeling like I want to go and be somewhere and do something, but a part of that is just wanting to go and not think about things. That's really what it is. When we go to a movie, when we go out to eat, when we go down to the bar down the street, right? All of those are different spaces where we are finding ways to sort of disconnect from a moment. And we're reconnecting in other kinds of ways with maybe someone else's vision or, you know, a different community, but we're not really being in touch with the needs of people around us. Um, So I think that that in this moment and in this time, people are actually maybe being pushed a little bit further into that. Uh, I notice a lot of people feeling really bad and sad, a lot of white folks, um, a lot of non-black folks, interestingly, um, Mm. as well, just feeling bad, which I think is a piece that's gonna happen. But I think there's more of that feeling occurring for folks than there has historically, again, because people have been moving so fast that there hasn't been any time um, to feel that kind of way. Um, as far as the other stuff, you know, and, and Elijah McLean, is that his name? The most recent. Aurora here, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, the lists of names of people, none of that is new and you know that, and I know that, but, the current climate that we're in, people are seeing it, they're noticing it more. It's a headline that sticks around. And I think that that as well is something that that's changing, that it's changing where we go. There's a lot of work to be done beyond this. And I'm all for people protesting and being out there and, you know, yelling and shouting and having rage even. I think that's a great space to take rage to. But what do we do next? There has to be more. It can't just be Hey, everybody, um, including big business, right? Uber donated X amount of money. And, you know, this individual over here donated this amount of money. And, and people are doing that. I have a friend that, that works for um, CRCA and does fundraising for um, organizations that, that are black run. She's a white person. And it's great because they've been bringing in a ton of money. And what's the next step? Because unless people are truly willing to give up, you know, huge amounts of wealth, that's not going to offset this in the long run. Um, so that, that's where I'm at is thinking about, you know, here we are, we're in this amazing pivotal moment. What do we do with it? Just got off the call with the president and their cabinet. We're doing some white accountability group with them so that they can move to the next layer out of the fear, guilt, shame. And several are in three or four generational households right now Mm -hmm. um, with different family members moving in, elder care, young people and saying, we're having these conversations around the dinner table every time we watch TV or the news comes on. And I don't know if that's happening in every household, but I do wonder to your point, if more white people particularly are paying attention in new ways, this is part of my hope, but I hear more whites, they're attending Zoom white accountability spaces we're doing. Mm -hmm. 
And I also see a few more whites get honest and say, I voted one way and I'm disgusted and I'm voting another way in November. And as we just watched July 3rd and July 4th, the spewing of more racist, xenophobic hatred and hate speech, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I do wonder if more whites are waking up and at least getting more awareness. You already shared your deep concern that with increasing awareness, it's checking the box. Okay, I can say Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Trans Matter. I'm not, if you're listening, Natalie has that on the screen behind them. Well, what's that? And, and whites, people I'm working with are overwhelmed with how much they have to learn, but acknowledging how incompetent they're feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great place to be. Wow. Anything else that's given you deep concern in this pivotal moment in time or any whispers of hope? Um, you know, I think it's it's interesting referring to the background that I have, the, the Black Trans Lives Matter. One of the things that always concerns me in anti-oppression conversation is when it becomes so deeply single identity focused. And I think racism is important to talk about, but if we talk about racism outside of oppression around sex, oppression around sexual orientation, oppression around gender identity, oppression around age, Right When we pull it out and it's this singular thing, we're losing something. And so, you know, it wasn't too long after um, George Floyd was murdered that there was a Black trans woman who was yeah. really severely beaten by Black men, right? Cisgender, presumably heterosexual black men. And so there's this intersection or this crossroads where folks end up and we just have to be having a larger conversation. Um, so that, that always concerns me when we can't bring in those additional layers and start to comprehend it. Um, interestingly enough, I think when somebody can understand the ways that oppression functions as a larger system and all these things are pieces within it, once you get that larger concept, then you understand racism so much better, right? You understand sexism so much better. But when we just look at them and try and examine them individually, I don't think it's possible. So that's definitely a, a concern that comes up for me in these conversations. Um, the hope is always there. I've always got lots of more than whispers of hope. Right? I, I don't know if a person can really do this work and give their full heart to it without hope. I function on some basic premises that people are good, right? People are good. Um, and we've been socialized into some really bad behavior. Um, the dehumanization that it takes to harm people around us. Uh, th those are the things that I'm trying to work with folks to overcome, but people can do it, right? So th there's always a lot of, of hope that keeps me lifted. And whether it's in community groups, self-care groups of folks doing this work to remind each other of hope, because there are days I have felt despair in these last four months, especially. Yeah. And staying in community with others, like, oh, you feel hope today? Tell me. Okay. And then we share it back. I join you in the complexity of um, 
the white person, particularly centering anti-blackness, Black Lives Matters, anti-racism work, racial justice work. While I also hold the complexity of intersecting identities and other dynamics that are oppressive that are happening. And you've seen this, I know, so many white people I know, when we start doing the breadth of differences, would much rather talk about lesbian gay, maybe even bisexual, maybe even gender identity, and but not with the intersections of that. And so, or sexism, or even hierarchical, I see folks wanting to talk much more about and the classism inside organizations. And so the work for me to keep race-centered, if I'm doing breadth work, because I just see before George Floyd's murder in this recent uprising, most whites would just rather push it to the side. Let's not talk about it. It's racist to even name people of color and whites. So I don't know if you have a reaction to that, but I. Yeah, I definitely. Um, what I try and do in my work is actually center privilege. Right. Because so often and, you know, for yourself talking from this perspective of a white person and trying to be careful to think about whiteness instead of falling into that space of thinking about maybe other targeted identities you have. I know there are black folks who do the same thing, right? Who are only focused on race identity, but don't pause to think about the privilege they may have around sex or around sexual orientation or around faith. And so if we can get folks to think about privilege and not feel bad about privilege, that's the other thing. Um, I know you've seen this in your life of work, and I think I came in more at the, the tail end of it, but there were a lot of folks out there that were just like, if you have privilege, you're bad, right? Just sort of beating people over the head with this concept, instead of helping people lean into the possibility that by, by thinking about and being with communities who are disadvantaged in areas where you have privilege, you can be this amazing tool and support and you can leverage that. And so, you know, in some of the work I do, especially if it's maybe thinking about systems of oppression as a whole, but really wanting people to, to also critically examine race, regardless of identity, critically examine sex and gender, regardless of identity, I do an exercise that has them really lean into their privileged spaces. Um, and I, I'm sure there are a handful of folks out there, but I have yet to have one at my training who has no areas of privilege. Right. mostly adults in my spaces. So if anything, it's going to be that piece. But I think that, that it works well thus far, you know, and loving people through it. I think for some reason we've pushed love out of this equation. Um, how do you care about the people that you're trying to support to change? Even if it's somebody that made you mad or somebody that harmed you, uh, being able to actually engage folks in a way that is supporting their growth. Um, we're deep in this, this call out cancel culture right now and writing people off when they do a thing. What would it look like to actually embrace that moment, to talk about that moment, to give space to repair and heal that moment with each other? I think that that actually moves toward you know, some true tran transformational change. Could you say more about the spaces you create for that? Because my experience is often the folks in our privileged identities, in this case, if we're centering race in this time, um, white people are, I didn't mean it, I didn't do it, perfectly logical explanations and wanna stay in intent. 
and our swirling and guilt, shame, fear. So how do you set up the environment, particularly what I'm seeing, tell me if you're seeing similar things or more um, BIPOC folk, Black, Indigenous, people of color, multiracial, biracial folk are at cumulative impact and done, just done. Oh. So whether you use the language of cumulative impact or so much generational current life traumas re-stimulated, so many triggers, whatever language you use, one uses, just done. And so in that moment, cumulative impact of energy come and saying, you just did this and the energy might be bigger than the moment and the white person is deer in the headlights, scared to death. Mm -hmm. Am I over-exaggerating or is that the kind of dynamic where you're like, let's do some healing reconciliation work? Yeah, I mean, so it's the last mosquito bite, right? I think that's a great way to, to think about that cumulative impact. You've been getting nibbled on all night and that one last thing happens and you're like, ah, suddenly off the rails with it. Um, in that space, as far as white folks are concerned, definitely a lot of guilt and shame comes up. The way that I try and create a space to, to support folks through it is actually just by showing my own vulnerability. So, you know, the most recent example, and I've, I've talked about this, I did uh, a workshop at Encore recently and then another conference, and I was looking out the window about two weeks ago. Um, I heard somebody out doing something at like one in the morning. I keep kind of late hours. I live in um, Adams Point, which is just up from Lake Merritt in Oakland, California. And so, you know, there's a street light and it's lit and I see something happening. I hear something. And so I actually go outside and I look over the balcony and I see this guy digging through a car and I can see that the guy's black. And I will tell you the very first place my head went is that this man was stealing something out of this car, right? And I'm, I'm very sure in this particular neighborhood, if that had been happening, same everything, and the guy had been white, that thought wouldn't have crossed my mind. So being able to tell a story like that to folks that I'm working with, right? And even as a person of color, so we're thinking about anti-blackness specifically in this story, I'm a good person. I know I'm a good person, but good people are socialized to have bad responses and being able to share that and be vulnerable about the ways that I've screwed up. And that's just one. I have a whole laundry list, right? Um, something about that makes it okay for people to lean into their failure, um, to lean into getting it wrong, to lean into the moments when they haven't been their best selves. And that's a beautiful thing. I think that it gets people out of what I would call spaces of ageism, right? Where as adults, we believe that we need to do things right, that we can't fail. And there's an intersection with that and white supremacy. And so you got to get people out of that space. Um, you know, I, I joke about bodily functions. I do all kinds of things that just break it down for people, take people more out of that deep pro professional frame that is, again, it's constructed as, as white supremacist and patriarchal and classist and just try and connect with people on a base of humanness. It's working so far, right? I, I don't know when I started doing it or how I started doing it, but in, in the times I've done it, in the last, I've been doing the work now for about 20 years, it's, it's working. So I think we need to humanize people more, humanize each other 
um, lean into our human selves. And then helping people understand how they can leverage privilege, because if you feel bad, what do you do with that? What do you do with this amazing thing that you have? I know it wasn't your fault, but wouldn't you want to help? That seems to get folks there. I love it. Before we go to break, can you let people know how they can find you, learn more about you, and maybe access some of your resources? Sure thing. Um, I've got a website, which you can find at www.i nvsn.org um, and then I can also be reached at natalie at invsn.org um, got a Facebook as well envisionconsulting.org or excuse me envision consulting at Facebook um, so those are some of the ways you can get in touch with me fabulous when we come back we'll continue talking with Natalie Thorson and vision consulting because I'd also love to know about how you then facilitate the conversation across privileged, marginalized identities after there's been some people have experienced some harm in behavior. So we'll be back. This is Dr. Kathy Bear, Transformation Change Radio. See you in a few moments. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The power of inspiration and awakening radio with Julia Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific will take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy Obear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy Obear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. We're back. I'm Dr. Kathy Barrett, Natalie Thornson. Thank you so much. Envision Consulting. 
we ended where you were talking about how to really hold a space for authentic dialogue, especially after a moment where someone in a privileged identity said or did something that was negatively impact having on someone in the corresponding marginalized. And how do you hold a space for dialogue, reconciliation? And you talked about how to relate in to the person whose behavior had a negative impact and relate in like, I've done that too. Here's some cons, you know, you're not alone, that sort of thing. Great strategy. Can you say more about how you hold the whole space and particularly the folks that may still have some re-stimulated emotion from the moment? Mm -hmm, definitely. I think that giving folks, I mean, first off, making sure and with any space and hopefully anyone out there that's facilitating groups knows to, to have some good sets of group agreements, right? Doing as much as possible to set up safety in that space, giving people language, et cetera. Um, and then allowing folks, right? If, if somebody is mad, if somebody is angry, I think allowing space for that anger, mm -hmm. but just making sure that that anger is, is coming in a way that is, you know, maybe not focused on tearing someone apart. Ang the anger can even be focused at a person, but not like you're a bad person, you're horrible, you know, ripping them to shreds. Typically, I don't think that my spaces ever get to that point, but I think a part of that is really about helping folks to understand from the beginning, before we even dive all the way into the conversation, helping folks to understand that we're so socialized into this, right? From the time that we're born, we're learning these behaviors. Um, and it doesn't mean that it excuses anything. I use the metaphor of a car accident, right? And I think many people out there have been in a car accident. And of those folks, a lot of people have been the cause of that accident. I don't know personally anyone who intentionally caused a car accident, but still the damage is there. And that damage can be anything from a scratch on a fender to actually killing someone. It can be manslaughter. And we have to be responsible for what happens in those moments, even if they're accidents, right? So if you hit somebody with your car and you create that moment, chances are that your insurance is gonna go up. You're gonna have to keep thinking about this. You're gonna drive differently. You're gonna behave differently. Um, the person in the other car may get out and, and cuss you out, yell at you, tell you that you're horrible. Um, they may spit on you, right? All kinds of things because they might be so furious about what happened. Um, so being able to understand the two sides of that dynamic and setting that up early on in my spaces, I think helps people to be a little bit more empathetic with one another. Uh, also with the empathy piece, how do we humanize each other, right? One of the huge things that oppression does and one of the huge things that we need for oppression to continue is dehumanization across identity. If I don't see you as a person, then it's easier for me to pull a trigger, right? Thinking about police, thinking about military and the things that have happened around anti-Blackness, there is a large scale dehumanization of Black people and the Black body in this country. And until we examine that, and until we can really start to see people as humans, right, that doesn't change. The same is true from the other end. Um, you know, thinking about, you mentioned Tanya Williams, we had a great conversation the other day about folks being centered in their own power. And so as a person of color, 
for me to be centered in my own power means that I can't be ruled by those moments of um, those moments of of engagement of being oppressed. Like I have to find some strength and some center in myself when something happens in that training space and a person is um you know does or says the thing that may activate someone around you know in this case anti-blackness that black person or that person of color if they're not black that they need to find a way to be whole and healthy right we all have rules to play in this so one of the things i'm seeing a lot with folks of color right now is that there's a lot of anger and you need to change this white people you need to fix this white people but there's also a lot of unpacking of sadness and rage that isn't happening and until that happens um we're not going to move very far forward so that's i'm trying to to hold and and work to engage and unpack all of those things simultaneously and knowing that that might come up knowing that people might just be furious and making a, a space for people's fury and rage um, yeah, there, there's no real formula to it. I was trying to think for like steps or hints. Um, I think just being able to hold it. And what I'm hearing is present to what healing needs to happen, what stories need to be told, what engagement needs to happen. It's a, some people think there is a checkbox to facilitating Mm -hmm. dismantling oppression work and social justice I have it much more of an art form there's so much to learn and practice yes and when we're in the moment being full, literally fully body fully emotional fully present and using our full selves is some of the best ways that I find I seem to be useful at times um, I'm hearing so many black indigenous folks of color that are on the different groups I'm in leading talk about that in many saying, I actually like not going into the office because I've had a chance to realize how much racism, sexism, homophobia, trans oppression, classism, disability is happening mm -hmm. around race and the colonization of indigenous folks. It's just infused in systems. And so to have this time of healing and I've been really encouraging supporting folks to do uh, affinity spaces, whether it's all people of color and indigenous folk, whether it's multiracial folk, black, Latinx, indigenous, Middle Eastern, North African, um, Asian American Pacific Islander, um, black African American, Caribbean black. I mean, there's so many different to have the space to share emotions, support, and maybe with facilitation and or just guiding each other to do some of that inner healing work that I do hear is so critical. And I want organizations supporting it. I want them investing in their employees of color, their indigenous employees to create those spaces if the employees want them. Yeah. Um, we've been using the term anti-blackness and you even at the break used the term Indigene, indigeneity, I can't, indigeneity. <laughs> Anti-indigeneity. I just made it up, but I think that would be the word. <laughs> anti-indigeneity. And as folks may be assuming or wondering, it's the anti-First Nation, Indigenous uh, folk, Native American, Native Canadian, and most folks are in U.S. or Canada listening. Mm -hmm. um, could you just talk about both of those terms in ways that I could understand 
Yeah, definitely. That would be so helpful because uh, I, I watched this fabulous webinar and it was wonderful looking at history and just if we were just talking to folk we're working within an organization, how do you help them understand anti-blackness and why it's critical and mm -hmm. anti-indigeneity? I think I had one extra syllable. <laughs> yeah. Um, when it comes to racism in the United States, right? The way that racism exists, the stereotypes around identity, that was created as, you know, we were settling, quote unquote, occupying, taking um, the North American land from folks. And one of the things that needed to be there, needed to happen um, first was anti-indigeneity because when you humanize this person that's across from you, I can think about this sometimes when I'm about to, to kill a bug, right? And you look at the bug too long and you start to think about its life. It's this weird, almost humanization that happens. And instead I have to pick it up and take it outside. It does something different when you stop to examine what's going on. Um, as folks were trying to take and quote unquote settle uh, this land, they needed to, to feel okay with moving, killing the genocide of folks who, who were here. Um, the same thing with slavery and the occupation of the black body, um, the murder of black people that, that happened large scale, right? The kinds of things that you hear about that happened during slavery can't happen from one human to another. We're not built like that. Humans actually have built-in empathetic response. And so what was necessary for those things to, to function was to set folks aside, to categorize them as something else, to categorize them as less than human. And that's sort of the roots of our anti-Blackness and anti-indigeneity. But it's something that you see, and I've been talking about this for so long, and I just saw that um, the show Cops has finally been canceled, right? Growing up, I remember watching Cops and what that show did again and again and again was feed images of Black folks who were dangerous, who were less than, who were, you know, not worth anything. And you're just, I, I was a kid watching this show and these messages are just coming at you again and again and again. I think about cartoons that I watched right? Bugs Bunny. Oh. <laughs> exactly, right? And all of that, and it's still, it's still there now. It's not just in history. It happens here today, the roles that Black folks play on television, um, uh, in film. It creates a lens and an existence where folks are less than. Anti-indigeneity, interestingly enough, I think exists in a space where we just forget that First Nations people are there. And, and they are, and I am constantly thinking about and watching and trying to lean toward the ways that they've been doing this anti-oppression work since the beginning, because it's amazing, thoughtful communities doing this stuff. Um, so, you know, the, the anti-feeling is when you see something enough that's dangerous or scary, it, it sort of sticks with you. It's a residue um, and it exists inside you in these interesting kinds of ways. And you have to unpack that. So, you know, as I looked out the window the other day and I saw this guy and I immediately went to, oh, you know, I, I didn't even think he's black, but I immediately went to, oh, he must be stealing something out of that car. 
I had to roll that all the way back and unpack, well, where did that image come from? Where did I get that from? You have to replace it with other images. And that's the neat thing is that you can change, right? So I have been intently working on focusing my particular Netflix queue so that it shows me films that are produced by, written by, and starring folks of color and, and a lot of Black folks, because you can find a lot more of that media out there. And it changes things when you're hearing people's stories from their perspectives, and they're not just a tokenized character written in by someone else. Um, the same kind of thing happens then when you have multiple intersecting identities. If people haven't watched Disclosure yet, Laverne Cox, great documentary, documentary on Netflix. Um, you know, she talks a lot about how we need the representation there. We need to see alternative experiences and stories and not people playing trans people because then we start to critique how well they play the person, right? Instead of actually critiquing how well they just act the part. So I think that it can sound scary to think of anti-Blackness. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you're human. It means you've grown up in our current world and those messages are going to stick with you. So we got to do what we can to unearth, unpack, replace them with beautiful new images. Um, it's a good way to go. Great strategies. And as I hear you, I was a history major and I'm thinking about the anti-Mexican dynamics, 1800s yeah. to support taking of all that land in the Mexican war and the anti-Filipina to support the Spanish-American War, and then the anti-Chinese to support bringing in indentured labor, anti-Japanese to support internment camps, um, anti-immigrant racist xenophobic language that's coming out to support the racist dynamics. And I just saw some more anti-Semitic mm -hmm. just this week that came out of a reaction to what 45 was saying. And so the intersections and the similarities as we look at all of oppression while we also hold the deep, deep history in this country of anti-Blackness, which um, shows up in skin color in so many different ways. Um, even the positioning of which groups of color we position to buffer. I wish we had more time. Yeah. I would love our last few moments to Folks are beginning to re-engage in new ways after this pandemic has helped so many find the gaps and the cracks in the policies and practices that are racist, classist, transphobic, disability oppressive, we could keep going, how we're not serving everyone. <clears throat> and people are coming back across race looking at, hmm, this climate was toxic before. How do we want to reimagine how we wanna to work together moving forward. As people are rejoining in different kinds of community space, virtual and hybrid, some in person, what are your hopes? What are your recommendations for how people can be in community in new ways, whether it's workplace, community organizations, families, to do the anti-oppression work, the liberation work in community? Yeah. Community is such an important piece of this work. Um, the, the ways that we have historically in a capitalist space been pushed away, even from family structure, right? Moving into these pods of family instead of living with extended family, et cetera. It pushes us 
to be individuals. Individualism is the American thing. I am an individual, right? How do we exist as a community? What does that look like? I think it can be an amazing, beautiful thing to tell someone you love them, right? I, I tag a lot of my emails with, with much love because really being able to extend that, it doesn't harm me at all. And it really makes people feel nice. It creates a space of connection with people. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me to do that in a moment. Um, lots of other things can, but just sharing love doesn't. Uh, and when that gets reflected back, uh, thinking about how we have community across identity is one of the big pushes that I give folks. Um, you know, if, and it can be hard. I know there are some places in the US where maybe you really just don't interface with folks of color. And so I think the work can be harder there. Um, you may have to spend a little more time, you know, trying to read books and, and watch films, but then maybe also try and actually meet real people. Um, not tokenizing, but meet people who have shared interests. Um, if we all are just friends with people that are like us, then the problem easily maintains. Right. Do you have a friend who is a different race than you, has a different ability status than you, has a different age than you? Thinking about the lack of connection that we in our larger communities have with young folks and elders is so disheartening. What does it look like to be in community across age? What does it look like to be in community across class? It takes some really strong examination. It takes some really strong examination of, of our spaces that we travel, our fears, right? What, what scares you about interfacing with this person? What scares you about being with somebody who is different than you are? And if we can start to do that, I think that the communities will happen. They're organic, having fun with people. I know that people don't typically put anti-oppression work and fun in the same basket, but if we can have fun and love and joy with people, if we can play with folks around us, then I think that that really starts to, to do something and the community will happen. And then when you have community with somebody and they harm you and you tell them, they're so much more likely to hear you. Yeah, They're likely to do something about it. Now, something needs to happen on the larger scale as well. I think on the, the institutional level, um, a big push that I've been hearing folks talk about is, you know, if you have access to privilege and, and power pushing companies, companies do tons of lobbying on a government level. Level. What does it mean to push a company to lobby for black lives? Right? I think that, that that to me is accountability. Nobody has said that yet in their BLM statement that I've read and all the ones that are flying around, the Black Lives Matter statements that people are putting out, nobody has said, we're gonna put our lobbying energy into changing policy around black and indigenous and people of color's lives. That's what I'm looking for. And it might be a company where they're located about looking at reimagining policing, reimagining, reinvesting in services that truly will support almost 90 to 95% of what traditional police officers do and having other folks do that, holding school boards accountable. Mm -hmm. And so as we close, 
I really appreciate you asking folks, not only in their immediate community, but as they're thinking about if they're working outside the home virtually or in place, how are they re-entering? Can there be space for how are people doing? What are we learning? What do we need to be collectively doing differently? But you're really saying, let's play together, whether it's a spades night. I'm, I get to play spades electronically with some people virtually. Breaking bread together, having meals, even if it's virtual. Just how do we build relationships within which can hold, now let's have other conversations that we've held back on, but that actually get in our way of truly being loving, connected, high-performing teams that are really serving the folks we say we're here to serve. Definitely. In the last couple minutes, any final thoughts and how can people find you? Because I do have one more question if you don't have a final thought. But I want to, if you have final thoughts, you have a couple minutes and then. Give me the question. There are going to be folks listening to this who are, your language, activated, who are just a cumulative impact and saying, talking about love and connection and community. I am just so effing pissed and I don't want to be in community with folks that are actively continuing to perpetuate policies and practices and interpersonal dynamics that are oppressive? Number one, take the time and space you need, mm. right? It's okay. Maybe you're not ready for community right now. I get it. Um, I think there is a lot of historical harm, um, damage, trauma that people are in. And until we work that out in our own spaces, we can't show up fully. Um, I also really work to try and help people understand and remind people, and this is where intersectionality comes in, that so many people out there aren't doing this intentionally. Most people, I don't believe, are doing it intentionally. It's happening all the time. But that doesn't mean that it came from a thoughtful intention. Because I see folks of color out there that are doing heterosexist and anti gay, lesbian, queer things all the time. I see um, men that are out there doing sexist things, right, all the time. We have to get off our high horses, come on down, and recognize that we are all sort of wading through this together. It's, it's that I'm better than you, or I know more than you, or, you know, I'm living this and you're not, when in reality, we're all living different pieces of it. But some folks just aren't going to be ready for that. And that's okay. And I'm not the person that's going to push anyone into that space. I am a person that can tell you that when we can get to that space, it feels really freeing. It feels nice to let go of the hatred and the anger and to admit my own flaws and to recognize that other people are flawed and think about how to be human together in a different kind of way. Thank you for your work and your love in the world. How can people find you, Natalie Thorson? Yes, um, www.invsn.org. Um, I can also be reached at Natalie at invsn.org and uh, Facebook, Envision Consulting, I-N-V-I-S-I-O-N Consulting. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. 
That's drkathyobear.com.